Hello, welcome to Soma Stories, a podcast vessel for inquiry around the body, hosted by me, Charmaine. Each episode gathers and weaves various perspectives around a related issue. Our hope is that this podcast will be a space for the practice of listening, an opening of headspace, and a regrounding of self. This fourth episode, we explore the gaze, what it means to see and to be seen. I will be speaking with artist Noor, fashion photographer Jaya Kidir, and Miss Universe Singapore Nandita Bana. I'm particularly glad that we are an audio platform because being free of any cameras allows for more freedom and less pressure when talking about this. First is Nandita, crowned Miss Universe Singapore in 2021. Hi everyone, my name is Nandita. I'm 21 years old and I'm currently a Miss Universe Singapore. And I'm also a model and a student and uh, I just love to explore and try new things. This was a big deal because she made the top 16, which is the farthest Singapore has gone in 34 years. We met last year when I photographed her for a small fashion shoot before the pageant happened. She shares her thoughts on what it is like to be a beauty queen in this day and age and what being in the spotlight has been like for her, from pretty privilege to fame. Especially in modelling and this Miss Universe, there's a certain standard of beauty that's preferred and I've been like quite privileged to just be born with it. I didn't have to do anything for it. And because of that, I've automatically been given this like, um, like, un- like uneven playing field where I'm at the top, where I can just easily enter a field like this without having to or not face any repercussions for entering a field like this. Um, when someone else who may look a bit different, like who is of a heavier size or maybe shorter or maybe like darker skin tone, I don't know whether it's the right thing to say, but it is the truth that like I like being in the spotlight sometimes. And I think everyone likes to be the center of attention every now and then in whatever thing that they like doing. But for me, it's like because of the dance background and something, I I do like being on stage or like being viewed by other people as like this person is doing really well, this person's really talented um, in, in like a very physical sense because you can be viewed as being talented and stuff. Let's say you get really good grades and people are like, wow, you're so talented. But that's different. That's like you're using your mind. But for some reason, I like it when people look at me in a physical sense and they're like, that's nice. And I don't know why. So so I enjoyed that. So I think that's what keeps me going for modeling where I like to do things where people are like, oh, she has the right energy or the right look or the right vibe. Um, and sometimes I don't talk about this because it seems very superficial that like when you say this out loud, then you're like, why, why do I like this? You know, like or people would be like, why do you like it when people say you look pretty? Isn't that very like vain or narcissistic of you? So that's something I'm still thinking about as to whether or like, why do I feel like this? Why do I like being perceived in such a f- frivolous way, maybe, or like superficial way? In Miss Universe sells it is that it's a spokesperson role where you're trying to inspire people, you're trying to, um, more, like more than an influencer basically, where you're trying to make change by changing people's mindsets. Um, but on a personal level, I've, I also feel like, I feel like that is a good way to sort of brand it because you first join people through like fashion shoots and looks and stuff. And once all these people are looking at this content, then you throw in like, um, like social justice stuff and you're like oh here's a hot picture of me and then afterwards you're like but donate to this thing so I feel like that's something influencers often do so so that's how that's how I saw those two things coming together. I asked her about what it's like to suddenly have so much attention on social media. 
you have this huge audience now and sometimes people feel very entitled to say things that when I was there at Miss Universe, like you see all the fan accounts or like the regular fans watching and they always leave comments under our posts and stuff and, and people feel very entitled to say, oh, you, this isn't your best picture or like, you know, maybe you shouldn't wear this or like you look fat and things like that. And I personally didn't face it, but I saw other contestants face that. And so I think one part of it, like the whole journey of processing it is like thinking about how I got this opportunity because of like the privilege of just being born with the features that I have and thinking about how things like Miss Universe or pageants still uphold a certain view as to what beauty is. And so while I was doing it and benefiting from it, when I won at the Singapore level, I did receive some comments where it's like, why is it an Indian girl who's going? Or like, is this what Singapore beauty looks like? Um, and stuff like that. So I think that's where race kind of came into play. That's that's where I kind of started thinking about how I don't see myself as someone who's like, like I see myself as Singaporean, but not necessarily like, oh, I'm Indian. And like I have these features. I'm not like self-aware of it all the time, but it's in situations like this where when other people pointed out, you're like, oh, wait, I don't look like everyone else. Or like, that's when I think people, or that's when I started thinking about how, especially in the beauty industry, certain features are preferred, certain features not preferred. And even at Miss Universe, similarly, where like Eurocentric beauty is a bit more preferred. So you you do see like preference amongst fans and amongst like other people where certain people get more opportunities or certain people get more um like photo shoots and stuff like that or, or favoritism because they fit that mold and like some people don't and I'm not sure how to best like talk about it and go around it because I don't want to come off as the person who's like um like oh the minority girl is being angry about race again you know so it's like it's fine it's like trying to find that um, midpoint where you can have conversations about this uh, but also not like alienate the people who are saying things like this because you're trying to change their mind but obviously they will be like why are you telling me what to do so it's like trying to find that because if someone did that to you like as a regular person if someone started messaging you saying oh your picture not nice you should do this then it, you would be like what what like why who are you you know like, you don't even know me but for some reason we feel okay with doing that to celebrities or whoever it is so so if you don't have the fans you don't have your platform and you can only get your platform by catering I wouldn't say pandering, but catering to what the fans want and need. So it's like you're kind of stuck in this loop where you want to obviously have your own your your own ideas, your goals, and like what you want to do, what you want to look like. But at the same time, if you want to keep that platform and the benefits that come with it, you must cater to what the people want. Like if I wasn't making money off of my looks and people were saying things to me like this, I'd just be like, okay, whatever. But because this is my livelihood, because I need these fans and like this following in order to make money, then it it um, it affects a bit more. And I think that's where like it, what is it like? How you're saying like there's a lot of money to be made off of this like looks based industries. In an industry so driven by aesthetics, details matter. Even a haircut. I think the cutting of the hair actually helped separate like my the way I view myself in a physical sense and the way I view myself in terms of my identity. So when those two things split, I think then it allows me, I can do whatever I want 
to the way I look, but I still know that I am who I am in terms of like my identity and and how I see myself. So I think I think that was quite helpful for me. Uh, but for the fans, obviously, I don't I don't really talk about this like on a public platform. This is just something I went through on like on a personal level. So I think for them, it's just like wow, she cut her hair so different now. So it was just like a fun thing for them. Yeah. But there were some people like oh, she looks like a man. Why is she representing us at Miss Universe where it's like supposed to be women? If she looks like a guy, and I think that also. Like um, fed into me feeling like, am I woman? Am I like, if I cut my hair, am I still considered, or do I still get to say I'm feminine and stuff? Um, and then thinking about like, why am I so, like, why do I want to be perceived as feminine so badly that this just this hair thing is like throwing me off? Finally, she talks about the responsibility of being followed. And I personally feel like, if it's something that you make money off of to feed your family, to feed yourself, then it's okay to do because like um, you do what you got to do to survive. But at the same time, it's like when you're in this very public role, I feel like there's a sense of responsibility you have or there should be a sense of responsibility to promoting the right thing or like influencing people in the right way. And when people see all this like over clear skin, you know, perfect, perfectly symmetrical face features and stuff, I, I don't know if that's the, I don't know whether it's right to, continue to pro- make, make money or make money off of being like a model and stuff if it means that you are going to make other people feel insecure maybe about the way they look when they see these images because even for myself like you said you asked about race and stuff at the beginning um, when I'm modeling in Singapore and it's very often you'll see like Eurocentric model features uh, on models of more booked, more rewarded than people who have other features, um, lighter skin tones, more pan-Asian faces and things like that. So like you see that and you compare a lot thinking that, oh, I wish I had that. I wish I had this, you know? And um, so seeing that, uh, feeling that on a personal level and then being on the flip side where I'm the person being the beauty standard who's like putting on makeup to give this perception that I have clear skin or that I look a certain way. So that's something I think about as well, whether that's the right thing to do. And if I do that, but also be like, oh, I'm going to start conversations about this or, or I will engage people in, in discussions about this. Will that offset the negativity that comes with um, me putting on makeup and like posting clear skin, picture perfect pictures? Yeah. yeah, like when you have a very, or when you want to build that social media following, you have to make it seem like you're 24-7, um, 100% of the time in that, model limelight space when actually in reality you might be only like 40 or 30 percent in that space and the other something percent is like you're just doing your regular stuff so it's like the more you fit the mold the more you get noticed the more people feel like they're entitled to give opinions so it's like again self-fulfilling cycle where if you fit it you get more and then if you don't fit it sometimes you get more as well so it's like you can never win yeah It's not common to have so much attention and to be frank and honest about the tensions one faces. That's why so many famous people have their guards up. So I'd just like to acknowledge this. Next is Jaya Kadir, who is often on the other end of looking as a fashion photographer who also has an artistic practice. Hi, I'm Jaya. I'm 27 this year. I'm a digital creative editor at a publication house based in Singapore. He talks about his current relationship to fashion photography, the changing industry, what it means to be in an industry of looking. Mostly they give me an assignment, then I just 
I think the only control I have is the way in which I execute it. And whether they are happy with it or not, then I have to make changes. <laughs> I'm quite alienated from it because I deal with it every day. Especially in terms of physically as well as like looking at the images produced by the camera. Like in terms of the work that I'm dealing with, which is image making and video editing. So... Also because it's more of a relationship that is transactional rather than a personal one at the moment. The big like key buzzword would be representation and like diversity. But then like uh, in terms of the ways in which they shape or like you know stakeholders of this like fashion system, like shape how people perceive it, they're very much still in control in that sense. It's more of trying to appease like the general population rather than like radically changing how we perceive like beauty in that sense. What then is his perception of beauty? What in my eyes makes a good model? I think it's more of like personality rather than like the measurement or like the form. Like a recent example would be, you know, the TikTok star, Hellbaddy. So I think that was quite refreshing in terms of representation because it's not just only in terms of how you look like conventionally, but also like in terms of your personality. I've, I've seen photographers like struggling to make a model look good, like to their own like, I think perceived standard of beauty, like in terms of like the metric of like, commerciality or you have to have like a jawline if you don't have a jawline then yeah it's not fashion enough even though like we've said that or we, we've tried to like include diverse models etc like predominantly it's like the more skinnier and thinner models like are represented rather than people of different like body shapes or like face shapes Jaya then speaks from a more personal perspective. The Malay community also in itself like polices how bodies are being presented. Like for example, I have a tattoo and my parents also police me in a way. Like for example, like when I had this photo shoot with like a Malay newspaper, then my parents asked me to cover up make sure I wear long sleeve and everything so that I don't show like tattoos. So in that sense, like, even though it's, it's like a moment that I should celebrate myself, like my body is also being police in that way. Like I, that, for that, I can speak about that issue for myself personally. When I interviewed like Malay women about how they manage their appearance, like, so basically, in my thesis, um, there's, I categorized it in like four ways in which Malays manage their appearance, which is going out with friends, going out with family, like to a like family function or like a wedding, and then going out to work and then going to school, like like situational 
in a situational context. Like how do, how would they dress? So I think these situations also, like I found that, yeah, they would dress differently according to the situation. Like for example, like if you are going, if they are going to a school, maybe it's because it's a secular school, then maybe they don't have to like dress conservatively. And then conversely, if they go to like a function or like a wedding where there's a lot of family members or like relatives, then they would dress in a more conservative way. We move from commercial observations about fashion to a more critical view. Yeah, especially with climate change, I don't see how fashion is viable anymore. In terms of like making new like garments, as well as new images, like do we do we still need new more new images? <laughs> yeah, that's a bit on my mind. Like since yeah, a few years already. Yeah, I feel like before entering university, like studying fashion media and going out of it, like graduating out of it, I feel like I've become a different person altogether because of looking at these things like critically. I think my work, my practice currently explores like slippages in like identity, whether it be like ethnic identity or political identity. I feel like my... <laughs> my practice is a, a lot of like hide and seek like negotiating what's okay and what's not okay in that sense and I also kind of explore these boundaries like for my final year I did a work called Yalam which is Malay backwards like in a mirror image kind of way self-referential to the camera also because like when I take pictures of my subject which is a Malay subject and then you know when I take a picture of them and then it's a mirror image in that sense so yeah I also think about things like ontologically and how they relate to like reality so my most recent work would be as an artist would be at Singapore Art Week which is called masa or masak masa, which means cook or cooking. In that sense, like masak masa is like there's two ways of interpreting it. Like it's like cooking or like play cooking. In that sense, my recent work in Singapore Art Week is a performance video work, and I feel like it has sort of liberated me in a way, in how I present myself to the public. Because I don't usually do that previously. Like, I was always behind the camera. So, in that way, that's why I feel like shooting myself has been quite a liberating process. I tend to be more intentional. And also because I don't have to negotiate with anybody else but myself and the space in it. So, it's like the most clear and articulate manner in which you can, you know, really work with the medium in that sense. For Jaya, it was the tool of filming oneself that liberated him. Quite similarly to Noor, our third interviewee. They take us through their journey in self-portraiture. 
I am Noor. I am a multidisciplinary artist. I write and make images to imagine as well as to seek um, people like myself and the communities that I'm a part of. When I think about being seen, I think about people's perception and how I can meet them halfway, how I can explain myself in a way that still maintains my essence, also in a way that people can easily understand what that essence is. And I think it was indoctrinated within me that at the end of your life, um, in Islam, especially in the Islamic version of the afterlife, we will all be in a field watching everybody's like film. And then in my head, I, I did ask my religious teacher, so like, what if, you know, the people who were living before color television was a thing, would it be in black and white? And he was like, well, wahu alam, which means only God knows. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah, but yeah, ever since I, I, I came across the idea, I think the idea of constantly surveilling myself and seeing how others would see me um, and giving a performance that would be like, yes, you did that. In the afterlife, it's just been something that um, I think about a lot. I think it, like, to only properly, strategically, and consciously use it as a tool only came around um, in college when I was in university. And I guess when you have to create images, I was uh, majoring in photography. And um, initially, I wanted to photograph other people. So for my first assignment, we were supposed to take portraits. And I pitched to my photography tutor that I wanted to take pho photographs of drag queens going to bed because I feel that um, drag queens are always very sharp, very, um, very strong figures. And I wanted to show a moment of softness and vulnerability right before they go to bed. And then my tutor was like, no. <laughs> my tutor was like, don't do that. Uh, and I was like, why? Then she said, you don't have time to do that. Like, I thought it would have been like, a, oh, you know. Like, I thought it would have been a critical commentary on why I shouldn't do that. But she was like, you can't do that. You only have one week left. And you, yeah, you, you won't. I, I'm afraid you might not be able to find enough enough people to photograph. So I, um, I, I, I did a similar concept to myself where um, I wasn't imagining myself as a drag queen, but rather a person who has to take off um, the makeup and the wig right before going to bed. So I just did a very straightforward portrait of me with natural light coming in, just wiping off the makeup and taking off my wig. Um, and... I think that for me was, it wasn't new or separate to me, but it was a cathartic, cathartic exercise in sort of bridging how I see myself in my head versus how people see me every day. Yeah. But they're not separate. It's just different facets of who I am. And for the rest of my years in university, I, I played on that a lot. Um, but even more so after I came out uh, as transgender and I started going by the name that I chose for myself and people were like, oh, when are you this and when are you not? Oh, is Nora a drag queen? Uh, or, um, yeah, do you 
do you take it off? Like, when do you decide you take it off? Something like that. So what I did was this project called um, Siapa Dia Noralia. Um, I used to go by Noralia before we rebranded. <laughs> um, yeah, Siapa Dia Noralia, which means, uh, which translates to who is Noralia in Malay. And I photographed myself um, as 20 different versions. And then I put it up on display for the end of semester. And I also accompanied the work with forms. Um, and I would say Noralia is, and then I put a line and another line so people could fill in. And um, after two days of exhibition, I would accompany the notes with the images to see, to see what other people thought of me. But people were actually a lot kinder and um, nobody dared to say, you know, really mean things. Like, I really wanted someone to say, like, Norlia is a man pretending to be a woman, you know. I really wanted somebody to say something aggressive that would be, that would put a fire under me and like, okay, I have to re-strategize, I have to work harder, I have to prove. But no, everybody was like, oh, Nora is an ethereal goddess. Nora is a daring person. Nora is bold. Nora is brave, I guess. That would naturally happen when you exhibit in an art school, yeah. As compared to like if I were to put myself out in the public. That is a whole different story. <laughs> it started with In Love, my work, um, which I did in 2017. I had gone to class, I took a module called Narrative Portraits. I was very obsessed, I think I'm still very obsessed with the politics of love and desirability. And I have never been in a romantic relationship. Up till now, I still haven't. But I've gone on dates, we've improved, you know. Uh, we've grown. Uh, but at that stage, I was very obsessed with desirability politics and love and how that can happen to me and how it would look like on a body like mine. I had gone into the project thinking, okay, I want to see how I would look like when I'm in love. Um, it involved a collaborator and I think to facilitate the collaboration, we created alter egos for both of us. And I created Noralia as a way to facilitate a character that was very much falling in love. And because once you take photos, it's just photos. People won't know whether it's staged or not. Um, but halfway through, my tutor was like, why do you have to create characters? You know, just the very fact of this project is you exploring you and this other person are agreeing to an experimental exploration of love is already the thesis. Why are you complicating things further by creating a character? And then I realized that I cannot separate myself from the character. And by the end of the project, and by the end of that semester, I realized that I am very much that character. But in the initial stages of that character, I guess there was an element of hypersexuality or like hyper-femininity that I was very obsessed with, um, with regards to how I wanted to present this character. Like she was wearing an Iron Maiden t-shirt. And I listened to metal, of course, but I don't listen to the entire discography of Iron Maiden. Uh, she was smoking by the window. Um, she has like long curly hair 
and she has her makeup on in the bedroom. Like who? Like you know, it's it's a fantasy. And I think in the initial stages of crafting up Nora Leah, I was very in, I was very interested in creating this fantastical version of her, where people are like, "Oh wow, she's such a bad girl. Like she has such this aura of mystery around her." And I wanted people to really like get to know the lore of Noralia and the backstory. And as I got more time, as I got to spend more time with Noralia. I think her narratives just became like everything. She became um, Sandro Botticelli's Venus. She became Nairoro Kidul for Vimal Kumar's work. She became. Um, she became Bumi, the Earth Goddess, as well, and she became like a prince, a Javanese princess. She became a Malaysian queen. She became a witch who got um, chastised by the village. Um, she became a lot of people, and I realized that Nora Leah was performing histories of femininity through the body that she is in. Yeah, I think the, the the reason why people really loved In Love and the portrayal of Noralia in In Love was that there would be breaks from like this beautiful girl in a long in long hair, and there'd be breaks from that where it's just like her like smiling and laughing at the camera, like just without any makeup on, and it's just a, a flash. And she's just there. And people enjoyed the candidness of that, but when it's also staged. Um, and I know that with any sort of strong portrayal of um, maybe not just women, just anybody, with any strong portrayal, people would also want to see a softer side to that portrayal, be it Beyonce, Lady Gaga, Nikki, Doja Cat, just anyone who has a strong outward portrayal of themselves, people would want to break that down. Uh, and I'm very, I'm very hyper aware of that. And I think Noralia has also playfully, uh, just played with that desire of wanting to see a character like her being broken down. Yeah. So um, once in a while, we strategically play with vulnerability. Yeah. Even in other areas of their life, Nora's sense of self-representation has shifted from just three years ago. Back in 2019, uh, when I, I first came up on the scene, <laughs> I was very insistent on making sure that people do not misgender me. So I would always have my wigs on, my makeup would always be flawless, like um, my lashes, I would have lashes on as well. I would you would never see me pop up to a public event without being dolled up. Um, but sometime towards 2021 or even 2020, I think the pandemic did a number on everybody. I feel like we all don't care anymore. We, I think we still do, but I think we try to strip down to the bare minimum. And when I was in isolation with everybody else, I realized that I don't care. I don't care to perform anymore. And um, whether you see me as me or not, it doesn't matter anymore because I know who I am. And I think 
the thing about playing into the gaze, gaze, um, is that sometimes you may unnecessarily create a a standard for yourself that is unachievable in the long run, uh, a standard that is not sustainable. You know, girls are expected um, to do like surgical. You know, if you want to be a bad bitch, you gotta look. You gotta look a certain way, and that has become the standard. Um, and being a bad bitch is exhausting. <laughs> so I think when the pandemic happened, I realized that I no longer cared for that. I mean, I still, I still do have fun. Like now, when I go to work, if I feel up to it, I would just. Um, put a little concealer, put a little blush, uh, mascara and eyeliner at best. And it's for myself. Yeah. But even when I do it for myself, I think, to quote Margaret Atwood, fantasies, fantasies, everything is a male fantasy. Even when you think you're not a male fantasy, you are a male fantasy. So you can never escape the bad bitch aesthetic that we know now has a long history of a, a very ri rich and diverse history of like whatever makeup trends that they borrow, be it from like the trans girls, um, from the African-American diaspora, and all the way up to like whatever it gets translated to the rest of the world, or even like the, the over-blushing that is now a thing, right? Um, that I want to think is a result of like the, the e-girls trying to emulate Asian makeup, um, trying to emulate the demureness of uh, Asian beauty. And I think whatever is currently trending is an approximation of whatever works on a lot of people. And I feel like we've had this conversation before about the algorithm, the be beauty algorithm and what comes out trending. At the moment, it's uh, Pablo Vita. She, uh, she's a Brazilian drag queen. She calls herself a drag queen. Um, but I think she's a doll. Like, she's not a trans girl, but I think she's a doll. And um, I like that she is both very feminine and masculine. And she's able to embody that. And um, she has, like, very strong um, legs and thighs, and she would wear short skirts. Um, and at the same time, she doesn't attempt to make her chest more feminine. Like, it's just flat. And I am very drawn to that. Um, I think when I see Pablo Vita, I get both gender euphoria and envy. Um, because I'm like, oh, damn, I don't look like that. But also, I'm like, hmm, I want to look like that? Or do I want to be with someone like that? On the other end, there are days when I just want to keep my stash, like only my stash, like no, no other facial hair, just a stash, and my glasses, and like a turtleneck, um, but also like a short skirt and heels. I, I, I feel like uh, as I become more comfortable with um, who I am as a person, my gender identity, I'm also becoming more comfortable expressing myself in um, non-binary ways or more androgynous ways. And um, I think for me, bad bitch used to just be like a long straight wig up to my ass 
and hills, but now it's it's becoming more and more uh, diverse. Sometimes I also want to look like Daria. <laughs> uh, she's an animation. She's a she's a animated figure from MTV back in the nineties. So she's this like very jaded girl in glasses, green jacket, and she just always has something hateful to say. And and I. I resonate with that as well. I think Daria's a bad bitch as well, yeah. There was a specific role that she had in telling people over and over again that I'm a trans girl and you will see me as a woman. And now that I know I am, and I don't have to convince anyone anymore, um, and I'm no longer interested to bridge that conversation, I think I, like, we say thank you, Noralia, but now also, like, um, she's still, I'm still Nora. I'm still Nora. It's just a matter of, like, um, I think giving myself permission to be more, to just have more fun in experimenting how I express myself outwardly. Because yeah. I think we all have, we all want to be different people on different days. And I also think the whole not presenting myself as dolled up as I was before. It allows this opportunity for me to talk about my transness in a way that maybe most people are not familiar with. Um, a lot of people immediately expect trans women to perform and look a certain way when a lot of us cannot do that, be it circumstance or choice. And I think it really opens up the periphery for what transness can look like. And I think for the longest time, I was very obsessed with the idea of cis passing, like getting away with people not knowing that I'm trans in my image until they read my artist bio. And um, I guess with that kind of sort of image circulating, um, people, I think people would expect trans girls would look like that all the time. And I think maybe that's not necessarily like the reality for a lot of us. So all I can do is to just um, allow myself to fill in the gaps. And I think, I think that that idea of opacity and filling up the gaps is something that can be very liberating when you imagine and also know that if you can imagine it exists. And I think... Um, ownership of image is also very important. And I think that's why um, self-portraiture at the beginning was so important to me. Because the moment I let um, my image be handled by somebody else, I really have to trust them. And I think we can really thank Kim Kardashian, actually, really. I think the idea of the selfie and sort of Kim reclaiming her narrative, right? Because her, her sex tape leaked. And out of there, she created an empire of her own and sort of like reclaiming that image that was used against her. I think Noralia is always about like desire. She's always going to be there. Um, yeah, she's like a guiding... Uh, she's like Aphrodite. Yes, yes, Noralia is like Aphrodite. <laughs> we are... We are not NFTs, but we are part of the metaverse. <laughs> We are the metaverse. The metaverse is here. You don't need to put on like VR. It's already here. We are already the metaverse. Yeah. 
Soma Stories is produced by Artwave Studio in collaboration with Tell Your Children. If you enjoyed listening, continue to support us by leaving a positive review on your listening platform of choice. As always, we've included the relevant links and they can be found on artwave.studio slash Soma Stories. In the next and final episode, we talk about avatars, what it means to have a digital body and what that does for us. I'll be speaking with artist Safia Yap, VTuber Kochi Katatir, and I'll share a little about my body of work. Pun intended. Thank you for listening and see you again.